Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to three guys in a flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, The Princess Bride. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the pit of despair, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Hello. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Did I mention that your job is on the line? Tonight we are talking about the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride comes to us from the, you know what, we do this all the time when it's Sean's turn, we're just not going to do it anymore. John, why the Princess Bride? The Princess Bride is one of those movies that it is almost impossible to find someone who hates the movie, who just does not like the movie. I'm sure maybe we'll find someone here tonight who does not like the movie, I'm not sure. But it's also a movie that is so quotable. You can hear those lines. You can hear anybody say those lines. You immediately hear Inigo Montoya's accent or, you know, Andre the Giant or anybody else. And you're taken right back to the movie. It's just one of those movies that I would say it's almost perfect and is just an unremakeable movie. In fact, did you hear they tried to remake this movie? No. They announced a while back that they were going to remake this movie and the fan outrage changed their mind. They basically said, there's no point in remaking this movie because it was perfect the first time they made it. It's also a movie, and, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, uh, it's a perfect date night movie. You know, if you got someone that you're trying to decide what kind of movie would she like and that I'd like and we'd both enjoy, Princess Bride, it's got a little something for everybody. Wait, your wife likes this movie? Oh, she loves this movie. I could have told you that. I did find one person who said she did not like this movie, and that was Nana. Last night when we were getting ready to watch this movie, I said, let's all sit down. We're going to watch The Princess Bride. Nana goes, I hate that movie. I said, what? She goes, I hate that movie. I said, why don't you watch it with us? She said, okay, I'll give it one more try. So she sat through it, and she's just enjoying the whole movie. She's laughing. She's grinning. And I said, I thought you said you hated this movie. She goes, oh, I meant The Prince of Tides. The mix-up, totally understandable. You know, Nick Nolte, Barbara Streisand, Carrie Elways, Robin Wright. Yeah, I get it. I know, they're all the same movie. I get it. But, you know, she gets them confused. But, you know, she ended up, by the end of the movie, she loved the movie too. Well, there you go. Uh, Did you see this in the theater in 87 there, Professor? I am confident that I did, but I don't recall specifically. What about you there, guy? I'm sure I did as well, but again, I don't recall. I'm pretty sure I did not, and it wasn't until later when I saw it. So, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if you grew up in the 80s, you more than likely you've seen The Princess Bride. Released on September 25th, 1987, The Princess Bride was directed by Rob Reiner. The screenplay by William Goldman. Based on the book, The Princess Bride, 
S. Morgenstein's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts, version by William Goldman. And it stars Carrie Elways, Robin Wright, Mandy Patakin, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Peter Falk, Fred Savage, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $16 million and looked to bring in $31 million. So, over half. So, is this our second Rob Reiner movie? What was our first? I don't recall us, re- I don't recall us doing a Rob Reiner movie yet. Mm. Carl Reiner. I know we talked about doing another Rob Reiner movie. Stand By Me. Stand By Me, right? Because that was the movie that he did before this. Why am I thinking big? Who directed big? That's Penny Marshall. Penny, Penny Marshall. Marshall. Not Rob something. Reiner, yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of directors and Rob Reiner being the director, um, what else has he got there, Professor? Uh, he did, well, the my personal preferences, uh, The American President. He also did A Few Good Men, which is totally awesome, and Misery, which I'm sure that you guys love. And his other big one, When Harry Met Sally. Do you know how long Rob Reiner has been trying to make this movie? How long? In 1971, when he was still making or still starring in All in the Family, he first read the book and he has been trying to basically make the movie ever since, considering that Carl Reiner was good friends with William Goldham. So that's how long. I mean, this book's been around for a long time. And William Goldman has been shopping it around for different, you know, for just a long time and never found the right person to make the movie until Rob Reiner. Yeah, well, there you go. There the movie go. got greenlit a couple of times, but then fate steps in. And for whatever reason, the project is mothballed. And so it was like a good 15 years where um, eventually. I, I guess that William Goldman, he ended up buying back the rights, which was highly unusual. He bought back the rights because he was so frustrated with what was uh, happening or the lack of effort that was happening to the movie. And it wasn't until that we have Rob Reiner just uh, sort of naively calls up and he's like, you know, I'm kind of sort of interested in this. And he he was at first uh, rebuffed by him, but he he suggested, how about... Why don't you watch my first two movies, Spinal Tap and John Cusack's The Sure Thing. And so after watching those two movies, Goldman felt that he could trust the movie with Rob because he understood the essence of of what he was trying to convey in his story. What about this cast? What did you guys think of the cast? Personally, I love the cast. Um, I figured, you know, just about all of them, I think, are cast perfectly. I can't see different casting for some of them. Uh, there was, you know, talk of uh, Danny DeVito playing uh, Vicini. Uh, there was talk of, I guess, originally back when William Goldman was originally shopping this around, he wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the Fezzik role, the Andre the Giant role. Yep. But then, uh, then Arnold's career took off and, could, you know, basically they couldn't afford him or couldn't put him in this movie. Sure. Sure. But you can I, have the Terminator rhyming. Right. He also wanted Carrie Fisher for Buttercup. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Robin Wright ended up getting that role. She was like at the tail end. 
the tail end. She's like one of the last few that they had uh, had auditioned with. And we are talking about 500 different people, you know, trying out for that role. And once they saw Robin Wright, they were like, she is perfect. This is Buttercup. Yeah, they cast her a week before filming started. Uh, she definitely does fit the role, her and Carrie Elways. And it was funny because the first time I saw Saw and I saw that Carrie Elways was in it, I was like, oh, it's fucking the Dread Pirate Roberts. Mm-hmm. So I thought the exact same thing. I thought it's going to be interesting to see him in a different role. And then he goes on and he does Robin Hood Men in Tights, which the roles are very similar, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a very... Uh, Princess Bride is very Errol Flinney Robin Hood feel because that's what Reiner wanted. But, um, and then he goes on and does an actual Robin Hood movie. So I can't remember which one came first. I think this one came first. This and came then, before Robin yeah, Hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it did. Yeah. So for me, for Carrie Elwes, uh, the first place that I put him is Twister. And then right after that, then I also think of him in Glory. Oh, yeah, Glory. Yeah, but Twister definitely. Yeah, Jonas. Yeah, and then uh, and then at the very tail end of things, he's in Stranger Things for several episodes. Oh my God, I meant to bring that up, and you're right. He plays the mayor. Yes, and he's the mayor that reminds Elise of the mayor from Jaws. Yes. So yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. What'd you think of Andre the Giant? Oh my gosh, um, I could probably spend the next hour talking about how much I loved Andre. Tankin and Wallace. I I love that trio so much. And then when it becomes a duo, oh, I just absolutely fell in love with Andre all over again when I watched it. One of the things that I love about this movie is some of the stories that come out from behind the scenes. Uh, Carrie wrote a book behind the scenes. Rob Reiner's talked about it in interviews. Uh, and there's their fond memories of Andre. Andre was actually one of the things that he said about this movie was this was one of the favorite or one of his most favorite things he ever did. He was actually scared to do it because he wasn't an actor. He was a wrestler and he, you know, was French. So he would have trouble with his lines. But the thing that impressed him the most that he loved most about it is he said, nobody on the set looked at me like a freak. They all treated me like an actor. As, as I was watching it last night, I was thinking to myself, God, this must have been so much fun on set. You know what I mean? Did you ever see the Andre the Giant documentary? Uh, I it's think, called Andre. It was on HBO. I think I, watched, I might have. I watched parts the of preview. Um, they talk about it. Mm-hmm. They talk about him doing this role. And yeah, he was. it was one of his most favorite times ever. Yeah, Mandy Patankin, he talked about one of his favorite moments that he shared with Andre was when he and Andre and the scriptwriter or the script supervisor, the three of them were sitting in the boat and it's in between takes and she's just making small talk and she's saying, so, you know, uh, how's it going? You know, what do you think? Did Are, are you enjoying yourself? Is this a nice time? And he's like, oh, yes. And she goes, oh, how? What, what makes it enjoyable for you? And, you know, without missing a beat, he says, nobody looks at me. And that was something that uh, also harkens back to uh, Andre talking about uh, previously how he has a great fondness for spending time with animals and being at farms and, and being around animals and such because animals, they never look twice at you. They couldn't care less what you look like. If you're big or small, short, fat, whatever, they don't care. They just look at you and you're, you're just you. Right, right. And I don't know if this is the time to bring this up now or later, but let's do it anyway. Uh, can a horse hold Andre the Giant? 
Did you I when he's, I was rewatching that movie, did you notice how much smaller he got at the end? I I, I, I kind of did, but I didn't want to. So he's if you know four hundred fifty to five hundred pounds. And and so horses probably could hold that kind of weight. Oh, interesting. Okay. I was uh, just curious. Sadly, this was near I think the end of his life. Yeah, and then he, he passed away. He passed away. And at this point after his wrestling career, they said he was super weak and he was in constant pain. So you notice most of the time when he's walking around this movie, he's either holding on to something or he's kind of stumbling around a little bit. He wasn't even strong enough to pick up Robin Wright. They had to use ropes to hold her while he was while she was in his arms. Well, yeah. I mean, his body Major back yeah. issues. Yeah, and from his gigantism that uh, I think just wreaked havoc on him. Well, rest in peace, Andre. Mandy Patinkin. Oh, my God. he! I, if anybody stole the show in this movie, it was Mandy Patinkin. Uh, and if you talk to him, I guess he talks about, you know, everywhere he goes, people still quote the hello line to him. And he says he loves it because this was his favorite role he has ever done. Well, I mean, it is probably the most recognizable line from this film. And, yeah, he nailed it. He was charming and he was fun. And uh, the chemistry he shared with his co-stars. Mandy Patakin really shined in this uh, role. Absolutely. I yeah. agree. It's funny to look at him in uh, Criminal Minds. It's like, but anyway, Chris Sarandon, he plays Prince Humperdinck. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that he is the voice of Jack Skellington. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, pretty wild. And, but then when you think about Jack Skellington, it's like, oh, I could totally, yeah, I got that now. Yeah. The yeah. only the only other place that I knew him for was a little gem of a horror movie called Fright Night. I was just about to say Fright Night. Every time I see him, I think of him as the vampire from Fright Night. So do I. Yeah, that, that's a nice little gem. That'd be a, that'd be a fun review. Uh, what would you guys think of Robin Wright? I thought she was delightful in this. And the... the uh, the, the the character that she plays, it uh, I I don't know why, but it just works for whatever reason. And, you know, I'm, I, maybe part of it's the accent, and another part of it is also I don't know. You know, there's I, I feel like that there's definitely some chemistry that happens between her and Carrie. Do you know why they had such a good chemistry? Because they were smitten on each other. That's what I was thinking. They're probably sweet on each other. Yeah, they were very sweet on each other, and. Uh, I guess uh, in between takes, they were very, very smitten. Apparently, Mark Knopfner, who basically made the, mu the music for this movie, made a deal with Rob Reiner that he would only do the music if Reiner hid the hat that he wore in This Is Spinal Tap somewhere in the film. Did you guys catch where that, that hat was hidden? I can only assume it's in Miracle Max's house. No. It's actually hanging in the grandson's be bedroom. Oh, I guess that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. but I, thought I, th that, I thought he was getting all clever and putting it in the fairy tale. I thought that was kind of an interesting little Easter egg that they snuck in there. Oh, sure. Mark Knopfner is responsible for the only Academy Award nomination that this movie got. Was it the music? Yeah, original oh. song. What did you guys think of the music? It was fine. It was fairy tale-y. Yeah, I think yeah. It, it worked. Do you know who Mark Knopfner is? Nope. He's the lead singer for Dire Straits. Oh. Money for nothing. Chicks for free. Mm -hmm. Is it trivia time? Why, yes, Don. I believe it would be trivia time. In our continuing pursuit to crown the master of movie trivia, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. In the grandson's bedroom, 
What color is the clock? Blue. White. Green. Fuck. Where does Iocane powder come from? Australia. Australia. Very good. Finish the quote. I know who you are. You're the Dread Pirate Roberts. Admit it. I do admit it. I am the Dread Pirate Roberts. I have no idea. It's Wesley's line of with pride. No, no. Obscure. What reason does Wesley give for wearing a mask? Because he's fuck ugly. They're terribly comfortable. He thinks everybody will be wearing them. That's right. What does Inigo Montoya swear by so that Wesley trusts him enough to throw down the rope? The death of his father? Yeah, that. The soul of his father. Eh, well, so far we're batting zeros. No, you got one. You got Australia. Together we got Australia. What does the grandson say that he hates that his grandfather does every time he visits? Pinches his cheeks. Very good, Professor. Which hand does Count Rogan have six fingers on? Right. Very good. What nickname did Buttercup call Wesley early on? Farm Boy. Very good, Don. What sports team is featured on the pajama shirt that Fred Savage is wearing? Football. (laughs) Chicago Bears. Bears. God damn it. The Bears. The Bears. And for the final question, what is the first thing you hear once the movie has started? Uh, the grandson talk. No, the grandson's playing a game. It's the video game, uh, the baseball video game. Is that your final answer? Oh, no, no, no. It's take me out to the ball game. Incorrect. He's coughing? It's a boy coughing. Oh. So by my calculations, that means uh, the professor won this round. He is ahead. Congratulations, professor. Yeah, good job, buddy. A grandfather reads a novel to his sick grandson, who initially dismisses the story. The tale concerns Buttercup, a young woman living on a farm in a fictional kingdom of Florin, during a feudal-like period. Whenever she tells farmhand Wesley to do something, he always answers, as you wish, his way of saying he loves her. They fall in love, and Wesley leaves to seek his fortune overseas so they can marry. When the dread pirate Roberts attacks his ship, Wesley is presumed dead. Five years later, Buttercup is unwillingly betrothed to Florence Prince Humperdinck. Before the wedding, she is kidnapped by three outlaws, a small Sicilian man named Vizini, a giant from Greenland named Fezzik, and a Spanish fencing master named Inigo Montoya, who seeks revenge against a six-fingered man who murdered his father. A masked man in black pursues them, as do Prince Humperdinck and his knights. All right, so as you said just a few minutes earlier, this movie starts off with a boy's cough, and we see a kid playing video games, and it's Fred Savage from The Wonder Years. What do you guys think of this whole opening bit with the whole narration? A grandfather's going to come read to his sick grandson. I totally related with that kid, you know, grandpa coming in. Oh, he always pinches my cheeks. Oh, a gift? book boring i totally related to him oh sure oh sure well here's the first thing and i didn't notice this right away but did you notice all the decorations around the room and out in the hallway yeah and there is a santa claus on the wall there's a little christmas tree out in the hallway are we doing this movie the wrong time of year is this a christmas movie 
Yeah, uh, you you can call it a Christmas movie all you want, buddy. It showed two houses outside with Christmas lights on yes. as well. And the book was wrapped in Christmas paper. Mm-hmm. So well, there you go. So Hashtag start the movement. No, it's not a Christmas movie. Why not? It doesn't have the elements of Christmas. It has a Christmas tree. It has Santa. It has a gift. A real evil looking Santa. <laughs> um, uh, I like the way this movie starts. I, I thought... It's kind of an interesting take that really what this movie is is just a grandfather reading a story to a sick kid. And one of the elements, and I don't know why every time I watch this movie, I have almost as much fun as looking around the kid's bedroom at all the things just from, you know, the 80s and 90s. You know, the old style Cheetos, the He-Man toys, there's a little Captain America, the stuff, you know, the posters on the wall. He's got like... You know, the fridge, refrigerator Perry on his wall. Just all those little things. It's just fun to kind of go back and see all those things. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't care about any of that stuff. Oh. I noticed the He-Man, and I always think to myself, I had that way. And so uh, they get into the book, and we are whisked away to fairy tale land, Florin. And this is where we meet Buttercup and Wesley. Another thing I really liked about this movie was, you know, I've talked about this before and other things, of when we get kind of a narrator or a voiceover that kind of says the things that we're thinking. And when the grandfather starts reading the book and talks about, you know, this love building between Buttercup and Wesley, you know, the farm boy, and it gets to the point where they're kissing. Hold the- it, hold it. And then it jumps right back to real life. Yeah, that was a, that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Is this a kissing book? Yeah. So Wesley leaves and turns out his ship is attacked by the dread pirate Roberts. And we are told that it is now five years later. Well, one thing I never realized, but did you know that the dread pirate Roberts was not made up? He actually existed in real life. Uh, I guess there was a man named Bartholomew Roberts, who was also known as Black Bart, who operated in the Caribbean in the early 18th century, and he was actually considered the most successful pirate of all time. Yeah, I just assumed it was someone like a Blackbeard or someone of legend. Me too. So, yeah. and, and it works. And, and it's a fairy tale. Yeah. There's a couple times in this fairy tale that, you know, usually in fairy tales, everything is either made up, all the characters are made up, and there's no connections to real life. But, you know, there's this connection to a real pirate. There's also mention of Australia later on in the movie. So they're... There are connections to the real life things. Fast forward five years later, we now meet Prince Humperdinck. What did you guys think of the prince and the whole kingdom and just this whole world that Rob Reiner is giving us? Having the movie start the way that it does, you know, we're 10 minutes into the, we're not even 10 minutes into the movie and we've met pretty much all the main characters already. And I was kind of impressed by that. You know, it, it, the story fast forwards to the wedding and, you know, in a fairy tale story, you know, more often than not, you're going to have your story ending with the wedding and they lived happily ever after. But more or less, our story really gets going when we get to the wedding. Yeah. And I've noticed that this movie is very well paced and, it, you know, at an hour and a half, it just kind of flies by and, and it's very much in chunks. And so right now we are setting up for what's going to be ultimately uh, the meat of this story. And that's, um, you know, Buttercup getting kidnapped and uh, the man in black's pursuit 
to find her. The way that this movie was designed was specifically we are viewing what it would look like for a grandfather reading a story to a young boy. He's either skipping by the parts that the young boy wouldn't care about or he's, you know, they're emphasizing the things that he would care about. So if you notice when they kind of flash back to the grandfather, he skips pages every so often or he'll skip a chunk or he'll go back to something and that's because they're focusing on what would a little boy really get into, you know, listening to this story. One of the interesting things, I was looking at differences between the movie version and the book version. And in the book, they actually go into more detail of why Gilder and Florin are either, like they're at the verge of going to war. And that was because Prince Humperdinck was supposed to marry the princess of Gilder. But shortly before their engagement, a gust of wind came and blew off the princess's hat showing that she was completely bald. He was so disgusted by it, he kicked her out of the country, out of Florin, and that's what caused the two kingdoms to become enemies. Did you notice that they kept referring to Buttercup as Princess Buttercup? Yeah. Whereas in early on in the movie, she's just Buttercup. Well, in the novel, they explain that the prince can only marry a princess. So the prince actually made her... Uh, the princess of a non-existent country just so he could marry her. That's why, you know, five years later, they're referring to her as Princess Buttercup. And so uh, Buttercup wants to leave because, well, she doesn't want to marry Humperdinck. And she thinks that Wesley's dead and she will never love again. And she's kidnapped. And this introduces us to who I think are my three favorite characters. Um, okay, at least two of my favorite characters uh, you get Vinzini, Fezzik, and Inigo. What did you guys think of this whole bit? Uh, I thought it was uh, interesting. I mean, I love the introduction of as, you know, lost circus performers uh, as she rides up to them. I thought, you know, she wasn't really trying to, she was just out for a ride because they said in the narration that, you know, she uh, was just going through the motions and was so lost in her despair. The only thing that she enjoyed doing was going out for these rides. So they knew she would be going out for this ride because she always followed the same path. Uh, the introduction of the introduction of these three characters was kind of fun, but you had to think she's on a horse. The three of them just said that we're about to kidnap you. Why wouldn't she try to run right away? It's fairy tale, man. You can't think like that in this. Yeah, but the, again, dialogue's fun. Dialogue's cute. Uh, you don't know what to make of these three characters the first time you meet them. I immediately was drawn to Fezzik and Inigo. Uh, their relationship and their camaraderie was uh, contagious. Uh, I felt that Wallace Shawn's character as the mean leader of the bunch who has to belittle them and, and you know, put them down. Uh, he played that role perfectly. But I think my favorite bit in this is... I think Vinzini says something mean to Fezzik and it gets him down and Inigo cheers him up and they start rhyming. I, I laughed out loud literally during this part because it was so cute. Yeah, it was uh, another thing that was kind of in the book they talked about is uh, Fezzik, you know, obviously he was a little bit slower of a character and they want, you know, Inigo kind of wanted to make him feel special. So he really pushed that, you know, Fezzik had a gift with rhyme. So that's why he would always feed him things to try to get him to rhyme. 
the other thing that we get here is we get a real quick uh, catch up on who these three characters are and what is the purpose of what they are doing. And it turns out that, you know, we have a, a, a drunk that was just wallowing in his own filth. And we have another that is an outcast. And so now they are given uh, employment through this guy that apparently wants to start a war. And for now, they are the bad guys. And even though that they are the bad guys, for now, eventually what ultimately happens in fairy tales in general is that they will gravitate to where they're supposed to be. So they will, if they are good souls, good characters, they will gravitate to the good side. If they are bad souls, they will gravitate eventually to the bad characters. And so having these characters being, these two characters of Inigo and Fezzik being so likable and charming and nice to each other, that tells us inside that if we follow a trope of a fairy tale, that these are actually going to be people that we are going to get behind and they're going to be good people in the end. Right, because immediately Fezzik's like, I don't want to hurt an innocent girl. This isn't right. And Vinzini is like, shut the fuck up, dude. You know, and so we're already kind of sympathetic to Fezzik and by extension, Inigo, because he doesn't come across as malicious or cruel either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You mentioned a sec ago that you thought Wallace Shawn did a good good job with Vicini. Uh, One of the things I read in an interview about him was he was scared to death the whole time he was on set. He was not the first choice, and he thought... He was going to be fired at any moment. He had heard a rumor that he was basically going to be replaced. So if you notice throughout the movie, he's always a little bit sweaty. And he says that's because he was just sweating bullets, afraid at any moment he was going to be let go. Oh, interesting. And I thought he did he, he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I mean, the rest is history, mm-hmm. right? And so they uh, put Buttercup on this ship and they start sailing away. And now it's nightfall and an eagle keeps looking back and Vanzini is like, why the fuck are you doing that? Quit doing that. And it turns out that they're being followed. But in the meantime, as they are distracted, buttercup goes overboard. And so she is going to be attacked by an eel, the shrieking eel, the shrieking eels. That's right. And Wallace Shawn's like, Hey, if you get back in the boat, I promise you no harm will come to you. And, uh, and then this is one of those moments where we cut back to the kid and the grandpa. Yep. Grandpa, grandson. Oh, it looked like you were getting a little uptight there. Yeah. She doesn't get eaten at this moment. Yeah. He's, 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 he kind of backs off a little bit and you know, you know, uh, egging little Kevin Arnold on. And then uh, when we cut back to the fairy tale. Oh, no, you already read that part. Oh, yes. Sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> so when we cut back, uh, we see Fezzik knocking the eel out and then lifting her, lifting Buttercup into the boat. And this is when we find out that they're being followed. Apparently, Robin Wright would often get very cold on set. And one of the ways that... Uh, Andre would help keep her warm was to wrap his hand around her head. His hand was so big it pretty much fit all the way around her face. Yeah. His fingers his fingers would come down past her nose. Yeah, he was a big fucking dude. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just a little kid. Just a little kid. How old do you think she is in this movie? When she does this movie? Mm-hmm. 21. 19. No, it's pretty fucking close. Pretty close. So well, now I want to know how old Carrie was. 
He was Carrie tw- Fisher. Carrie Ellis. Oh, Carrie Elways. He was twenty-one. He was twenty-one. Okay, so twenty-one with nineteen. I guess that works. So now it's the next morning, and they pull up to the cliffs of insanity. The man in black confronts the outlaws atop the cliffs of insanity. He defeats Inigo in a fencing duel and knocks him out, chokes Fezzik into unconsciousness, and tricks Vinzini into drinking a deadly poison. He forcibly flees with Buttercup. Buttercup correctly guesses he is the dread pirate Roberts, berates him for killing Wesley, and shoves him down a hill. While tumbling, he shouts, as you wish. Upon realizing he is Wesley, Buttercup throws herself down after him and they are reunited. So we get to the Cliffs of Insanity. I think this is probably one of my favorite scenes uh, is the Dread Pirate Roberts going through the three of them, you know, like trials. And uh, I love how Vanzini's like... Uh, Fezzik's the strongest person ever, and he's the only one that can get up this cliff. And he's carrying all three of them, and he starts climbing. And then before you know it, Wesley's on their tail. What did you guys think of this whole bit? It was fun. It was, it was really fun watching them go up and listening to all the the banter and all the smack talk that that, that Andre has to put up with from Vizzini. It's just so, he's so amusing. And yeah. this this is one of those things when we talk about you know special effects in the movie and, and the campiness of it, uh, the person that was coordinator for this effect of them climbing up the rope said that this is one of the things he hated the most the look of how it looked of him climbing up the rope. But I always think it just looks fun. And, you know, it doesn't look realistic, but it looks just them watching them. You know, him flying up that rope. It's just a fun way they did it. Oh yeah, and I mean, I guess if you want to nitpick it, it could look. You yeah. know, cheesy or whatever, but why? But it's, it's a, a it's a fairy tale movie and it's for fun. Okay. So I, I think that guy's being a little hard on himself. So they get to the top and Vinzini says, We're gonna head off this way. Uh to Inigo, you stay and wait for the guy coming up. I'm gonna do him left handed. I love that bit when he's asking Vinzini, uh, should I do him right handed or left handed? And he's being all cocky and this. And then we get to the bit where uh, the rope, they cut the rope, and he's still climbing up. And then there's that dialogue between the man in black and Inigo. I thought that bit was pretty funny. I liked how this, and Professor, you were talking about earlier of, you know, guys who kind of start out on the bad side but are working their way to the light side. And this is where you really get the impression that Inigo is an honorable man. I mean, he flat out says to him, you know, can I just throw you down the rope? I promise you will get up. And then he says, you know, on the soul of my father, you will make it to the top. Showing that he was an honorable man. And when the man in black does get to the top, he basically says, no, 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 you rest and we'll, you know, we'll fight when you're ready. So again, just showing his character. Yeah. Yeah. All the dialogue that happens back and forth between these two characters at this time, from the time that we first have Inigo poking his head over the top. Uh, could you hurry up a little bit more? I'm doing the best I can. How about you just let me do this? He's like, all right, thank you. And just the way that they go back and forth with each other is uh, just so charming. And and, and the over-the-top politeness and niceness that they have towards each other 
up until you know the duel begins. It it just makes these characters just so darn likable. And again, you bring up the the writing in this. Just I love when uh, you know Inigo is saying, "Can can we speed this up?" And he's like, "You're just gonna have to wait." And he's like, "I hate waiting." Do you have six fingers? That's an interesting way to start a conversation. Yeah. Well, he was just making sure. Right. And then he tells him the story and you're right. The banter that goes back and forth and the, the sword play and how they're calling each other out on their different moves. It was wonderful. And I think what really sells it is after the man in black wins and Nigo says, okay, I'm ready. Kill me. And uh, the man in black's like destroying you would be like destroying a painted glass in a church. It just, it's not, you don't do it. Right. So he just knocks him out. So, some people have labeled this fight scene as the greatest sword fight of the modern era. Would you guys agree or disagree? Disagree. Well, there's not too many other sword fights that I can think of. The only other place I go to is Star Wars, you know, with lightsabers. Next time, if it's ever on, check out The Mask of Zorro. Oh, with yeah. With Antonio I, Banderas. I, I saw that back in the day. I think that one was better. I guess yeah. we could talk about Highlander, too. I think I would go with Princess Bride over Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially Highlander, Oh, what too. about fucking Kill Bill? Well, this, I think, was they made that claim before, I think, Kill Bill came out. But you're right. There are some amazing ones in Kill Bill. Uh, now, the interesting thing, you brought up Zorro. Uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, the Man in Black, his costume was actually inspired by Zorro. The only thing that he didn't have was the cape. And the hat. And the hat. And the hat. And to that, I would say, you think? Yeah. Both actors trained for months. It shows. Months on doing their sword play. And so when they finally revealed it to Rob Reiner and they showed it to him and Rob was like, eh, it's only a minute long. Uh, so could you make it longer? And so they ended up, you know, hitting it again. And so we end up getting a duel that lasts just a little over three minutes. Yeah. But yeah, they, they trained constantly with, the, with their sword play on it. And that is actually them doing all of the, the sword work. There, there, there's no doubles doing any, of the swordplay work. Yeah, it's only the flips that there are doubles for. Uh, now, the choreographer for the fight scene, uh, do you know what he is also famous for choreographing? Uh, I'm pretty sure there was two of them, and fuck, take your pick. Bond, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Um, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. Yeah, one of them trained Errol Flynn. Yeah, uh, but so that's exactly what I was going for. Is So that's why you notice that the swordplay is, I think, on par with some of those other movies. And then uh, after he bests Inigo, he runs into the giant. My my way is not very supporting. <laughs> I like it. Inconceivable. How many times do we hear him say inconceivable? And, you know, uh, Inigo even says, I do not think that means what you think it means. I, don't, I do not think that word means what you think it means. But here's the question. That's not a question. What it, does inconceivable mean? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And when he's saying inconceivable, isn't he using it correctly? Yes. Right, okay. so there is no question. Inigo okay. was wrong. Okay, I just so, want to make sure. But it's one of the most memorable lines. So he goes and he battles Fezzik, and I like this bit too because they're talking back and forth. And and, and, Fe and Andre just looks like he's having so much fun. You know what I mean? And uh, My favorite part is of that fight is right in the beginning when uh, Wesley is punching him and hitting him and trying to you know hold on to him and all that, and Fezzik is doing nothing. And he's like... Are, are you just having fun with me? And he's like, I just wanted you to feel good. Yeah, I just wanted to feel, I just wanted you to feel like you had a chance. Uh, I like when he's holding the boulder, though. And he goes, I could hit you in the head now. 
or we could fight. (laughs) Put down our weapons and try to kill each other like civilized humans. Yeah, yeah. So they fight, and Wesley bests the giant. And in the meantime, Hupperdink has his fucking compass on and his bloodhounds because they are now on... They are now at the Cliffs of Insanity, and they're on the trail looking for Buttercup. Yeah, because he is the... Greatest hunter in the world. And they make a point to show us that he's hunting and tracking because he'll, he mimics the steps and he says, uh, one guy went this way, one guy went that way. And I thought that was kind of funny. After he chokes out Fezzik, he's now on to the final of the three fights, which I thought was clever. And you're trying to kidnap what I have rightfully stolen. Rightfully stolen. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you. How come Buttercup doesn't recognize Wesley's voice? I thought, I, I think the same thing every time. Well, one thing my thought is maybe it's been five years and she hasn't heard his voice in so long and she's in her mind, she's so intent that he's dead. So it couldn't possibly be him. Yeah, no. Or maybe everybody sounds like Wesley to her. Yeah, no. I, I just I just think it every time. She's sitting there with a blindfold on and all she can do is sit and listen and she doesn't recognize him. The love of her life that she's been missing and craving. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a fairy tale. It is. And we're moving on. I love the the battle of wits. The battle of wits has begun. Therefore, I can't drink the wine in front of you. And therefore, I can't drink the wine in front of me. And Wesley just keeps egg. Oh, you're so astute. You're so smart. Well, one of the best things about this scene, and it always stands out to me, always sticks out to me, is when, when the man in black turns around to put the eye cane powder in the wine glasses, then turns back around and goes to put the glass down. He does that quick little shuffle. And I just love that quick little shuffle. Like that did anything. It's just going back and forth. Right. Yeah. 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 So they go through the bit and it turns out that Vinzini drinks poison anyway, because Wesley poisoned them both and buttercup gets her blindfold taken off and she doesn't recognize his voice. How could she not recognize him after seeing him? And the first thing I thought of was he's wearing a Clark Kent hood. Yeah, basically Lois Lane never recognizes, you know, Superman when he's got the glass, the Clark Kent glasses on. Must be the same thing with the mask. And that's what I chalked that up to, but I'm still pissed about the voice thing. I, I just, uh, I enjoyed the banter that they had back and forth. He lays into her pretty good. He's a dick. Let's just call it for what it is, right? If he has thought of nothing but getting back to her and being with her why does he treat her like this my only thought is at this point he feels a little bit of rejection in that he has struggled for five years to get back to her only to find out that she's engaged to be married to someone else and that you know at first he assumes that he you know she loves this prince so he's just being the the spiteful ex at this point you know, even with that comment, and it, it's something a comment that bugs me all the time, which is, you know, where I come from, you know, when a woman lies, she basically gets smacked across the face. Yeah, well, I mean. I mean, that's a little little bit brutal. Uh, but he's kind of also trying to get out of her what the story is. You know, what is her connection with this prince? I suppose. Um, I just think he's a dick. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, uh, she fights back a little bit. She's not really much of a fighter. She is very much, very much the pure definition of damsel in distress. So um, she pushes Wesley down the hill. In the meantime, we we do see Humperdinck closing in, right? He 
he finds that, oh, uh, the, there was a giant that fought here. And then he finds Vizzini and, oh, this is Iocane. I'd bet my life on it, right? Right. And then from there, that's when they take off again. After Buttercup throws Wesley down the hill, she realizes who he is. Because what he says. And he, she throws herself down the fucking hill. Now, this is a fun scene if you pause it in the right moment. Uh, if you pause it, you can actually tell where the stuntmen are that are rolling down the hill. And for some reason, they chose a guy with long hair to play Buttercup. And if you pause it, you can see his face full on that he has a big like handlebar mustache. So it's just kind of funny to see. It almost feels like Mel Brooks kind of. Now, there is a, a funny part if for anybody who's ever read the book or is interested in reading the book by William Goldman. Uh, he mentions when they get down to the bottom of the hill that there is a, I don't know if it's a chapter or a part called The Reunion, where it's actually a big lovemaking scene between Buttercup and Wesley for them being reunited. Now, if you notice in the movie, that's where... Uh, Peter Falk, the grandpa, skips a few pages. So you basically, it cuts out the love scene. In the book, it's the same thing. It basically says uh, that William Goldman uh, has been fighting the estate of S. Morgenstein to try to get the rights to basically put that chapter in the book and is not allowed to. But if you write to the S. Morgenstein estate, they will send you the pages that were removed from the book of the love scene. So anybody who actually wrote to the estate would then get from the estate copies of letters that were legal, basically letters that said, we are not legally allowing uh, William Goldman or anybody who reads his book to access to those pages. Those are our property. We will not share them. So I thought that was kind of a funny little story. Well, it turns out there is no S. Morgenstein. William Goldman made up S. Morgenstein because he wanted to write a fairy tale and he wanted it to sound like an older fairy tale that came from like 1700s, you know, 1600s. He wanted it to sound in that kind of vein. So he made up this whole thing about the legal battle, about all that, just for fun to give a little bit more credit to the story. The story actually comes from him of a story that he used to tell to his daughters. And his two daughters came up with the title accidentally when they basically said one of them wanted a story about a princess, the other one wanted a story about a bride. So that's where they came up with the princess bride. Uh, so really, you know, the whole joke about the S. Morgenstein and writing and all that, all made up. Yeah, well, there you go. Okay. I just like the moment where, you know, they kiss and then, and then you have, oh, no, 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 please. What, 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 what is it? What's wrong? They're kissing again. You remember that moment? Yeah, yeah. It snaps us back to reality and then back into the fairy tale. And like I was saying, if you notice, the grandfather actually skips some pages because of that. So they are reunited. And it feels so good. While making their way through the dangerous fire swamp to avoid Hupperdink, Wesley explains how Dread Pirate Roberts is an inherited title that he assumed when the previous Roberts wished to retire. Having found Buttercup, Wesley intends to pass the title to another. Humperdinck captures them after they emerge from the fire swamp. Buttercup agrees to return with Humperdinck after he promises to release Wesley. 
Hupperdink secretly orders his sadistic visor Count Rugen to take Wesley to the pit of despair for torture on a machine Rugen invented. Before being knocked out, Wesley spots six fingers on Rugen's hand. When Buttercup threatens suicide if the wedding happens, Humperdinck falsely promises to find Wesley. He really plans to start a war with the country of Gilder by killing Buttercup and framing Gilder for the murder. He had secretly hired Vinzini to do this before Wesley interfered. Meanwhile, Fezzik becomes part of the Brute Squad, ordered to clear the thieves' forest before the wedding. He finds a drunk Anigo living in the forest, whom he sobers up and tells about Rugen. Anigo realizes that he and Fezzik need Wesley's help to storm the castle. So into the swamp they go. What did you guys think of this whole bit? We'll never survive. Nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. So many little lines like that that are fun. I just felt like this is, you know, a typical fairy tale thing. There's always something like some grave, horrible area in every fairy tale. Oh, sure. And, you know, Wesley defeats them all. He defeats the three captors that are holding her, Buttercup. And then he also defeats the three terrors of the, of the forest as well. Doing that classic hero stuff. Going through the fire swamp, did you catch a cameo? Uh, no, I did not. There is a Rob Reiner cameo in the Fire Swamp. Uh, what was he? He is the voice of the R.O.U.S.'s. Oh. And then while we're in the Fire Swamp, we, we see the, uh, the the flame bursts, and then we are exposed to the lightning sand. And the lightning sand, I thought, was a pretty good scene because I was surprised how long they kept our characters under the sand. That yeah. Was, that was a long time. And then when they get out and they're hugging, uh, Wesley sees the R.O.U.S. is behind her, you know. Saying that, I don't believe they exist. Yeah, yeah. He's fucking lying to her, man. Red flags all over the the place. Starts off being a dick, and now he's lying to her. I feel like this is say anything all over again. Oh, that's a good comparison. One thing I just love about it is this scene almost felt like, this whole thing felt like they had run out of ideas when trying to name the giant rats. Let's just call them rodents of unusual size. Oh, sure. Did that feel kind of, I don't know, Monty Python or? It, yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like a fun name, a fun made up name. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's iconic. Yeah. And then they finally emerge the other side. We made it. Now, was that so terrible? And then they come out and Humperdinck's waiting for him. Yeah. And he, of course, surrounds them uh, and uh, even makes the comment that, you know, we know the secret to the fire swamp. We could live happily in there. And it was at this bit, uh, right before they get out, it's actually when Wesley's fighting the rat, I was thinking to myself, she is truly a damsel in distress. She does nothing to help him. She's paralyzed with fear. And even though she has that branch, she barely, barely uses it on the R.O.U.S. I know. I kept thinking, why is she not helping him? Why is she not beating on that thing? I know. I know. I was thinking the same thing. Maybe she was like, hey, that's what you get for being a dick. What's funny is even like fans of this movie, some of them do complain about how much she was a damsel in distress. But really, Goldman, when he was writing this, was trying to make it be almost a statement about fairy tales. It was almost like the anti-fairy tale fairy tale movie. So he was really playing her up to be the extreme damsel in distress, which a lot of people said that she got her... I know she made up for it in the Wonder Woman movie when she comes back as this badass Amazon who basically kicks some serious ass. So they get out, Humperdinck's waiting for him, and then they she makes a deal, 
Right? She says, if you don't harm him, I'll go back with I you. I love when she says that, how everyone's surprised, even Wesley, looks at her and goes, excuse me? Now, there is an interesting note on this scene. Uh, you know, when Wesley notices the six fingers on uh, Count Rogan's hand and made mention that someone's looking for you, and then he gets clocked in the head by the sword. Did you read about that, Professor? Yes. Basically, Carrie Elways said to Christopher Guest, I want you to really hit me. Go ahead and just hit me hard on top of the head with the sword to make it look realistic. And when he did hit him on the head, he actually did knock out Carrie Elways uh, to the point where he even had to have stitches on the top of his head. <laughs> That's what he gets for asking. <laughs> Spent a day in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean. And so naturally we know that Umberdink's not going to, you know, let him take him back to his ship like he was promised, right? So uh, he is taken to the pit of despair. Yes. Wesley wakes up in the pit of despair. Well, the actor who plays the albino, do you know that he has never watched the movie? No, I have no, I had no idea. In an interview, he said that the contacts that they made him wear were so painful. I guess he had an allergic reaction or some kind of reaction to the contacts. It was the saline. The saline, was that what it was? That was so painful uh, that he was in constant just trauma from it, but didn't want to say anything for fear of getting fired. So right. because of that, he says it's just hard for him to revisit the movie. So he hasn't ever watched it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I just feel bad for him. There you go. But what are you going to do? The machine that they use on Wesley, uh, apparently that was a design that was meant for a James Bond movie uh, that was never used. So they used it for this movie. It kind of felt James Bondy and a little Dr. Noish. Elaborate, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like how sadistic Christopher Guest really is. And while he's doing this, I like that he's doing it for research purposes and he wants to take notes and, you know, they turn it to one. And please be honest. This is for posterity. It's fucking pretty much killing him. And he says, how was it? And then all uh, Wesley can do is whimper and cry. I thought that was pretty funny. I love how they have built up this character to be the badass Dread Pirate Roberts and all that. And then they give him this vulnerable moment. Yeah, he does cry. So he's not, you know, unbreakable. He's not invulnerable. Right, right. After this, we are told that uh, Prince Humperdinck's father has died and Humperdinck and Buttercup are married and she is now Queen Buttercup. And then all of a sudden, the grandson, wait a second. He, he interrupts again. It's like, that's not how it's supposed to go. And the grandpa's like, do you want me to finish this or not? You little fucking shit. <laughs> and so it turns out. Nightmares. Dream sequence. I love uh, the grandfather's line after the boy says, see, I knew it. Uh, the comments, yes, you're very smart. Now shut up. Buttercup confronts Humperdinck, and this is where she starts to grow a spine. She stands up for herself, and she says that she doesn't want to marry Humperdinck, and she is in love with Wesley, and he is going to be uh, the only person that she wants. And Humperdinck, he, he measures himself for just a moment, and he comes up with a compromise. The compromise is, why don't you write four letters I'll send them on my fastest ships, and if he comes back, then the two of you may go off. But if he doesn't come back, maybe if he doesn't come back, you might consider to marry me instead. 
Yeah, he's kind of like instead of suicide. Yeah, uh, maybe I might be a better option than suicide. He says something like that, and so uh, Buttercup says, "All right, let's do it." There's a scene that comes up after this where uh, Humberdink says, "I want the thieves' force cleared," so they hire the brute squad and send them out to clear the brute squad. Well. They mentioned that they're having problems with a Spaniard. They can't seem to get him to move, and he basically keeps fighting them. So you see a one of the Brute Squad guys come up to Inigo and basically say, Hey, you, ho there. And Inigo responds back, uh, "What You, ho there. Uh, apparently, I never realized this, but ho there, which is J-O-D-E-R, in Spanish is basically the equivalent of telling someone to fuck off. So that's the little inside joke in that little scene that when he says you hold air, he's telling the guy to fuck off. Yeah, well, there you go. And so with Fezzik being part of the brute squad, he finds an ego and he sobers him up and tells him about the six figured, the six fingered man is in the castle. And he's like, how many guards? And they're like 30. And he's like, Fezzik, how many can you take? And Fezzik's like, 10. And, and Nigo's like, well, that would leave 20 for me. <laughs> and it's just kind of ridiculous, right? I need the man in black. Buttercup discovers that Humperdinck never searched for Wesley and calls him a coward. Enraged, Humperdinck imprisons Buttercup and turns up the torture machine to his highest setting, which appears to kill Wesley. Anigo and Fezzik follow Wesley's screams through the forest, find his body, and bring him to Miracle Max, a folk healer. Max revives the mostly dead Wesley, though he is severely weakened. As Wesley, Anigo, and Fezzik storm the castle, Humperdinck panics and orders the in-progress wedding to be shortened. Inigo finds and chases Rugen before Rugen throws a knife into Inigo's abdomen. Rugen realizes who Inigo is and taunts him about his father. Inigo overcomes the pain and kills Rugen. Wesley locates Buttercup, who is about to commit suicide as she believes she is married to Humperdinck. Wesley assures her the marriage is invalid because she never completed her wedding vows. Humperdinck finds them and approaches Wesley to kill him. Before Wesley wills himself to stand and intimidates Humperdinck into surrendering just before Inigo finds them. They hear Fezzik's voice outside and discover he has produced four white horses for their escape. They leave Humperdinck tied to a chair and jump to safety through the window. Having killed Rugen, Inigo is unsure what to do with the rest of his life now. Wesley offers him the Dread Pirate Roberts title. As dawn arises, Wesley and Buttercup share a passionate kiss. Back in his bedroom, the boy asks his grandfather to read him the story again the next day, to which his grandfather replies, As you wish. Roll credits. All right, so uh, Buttercup figures out that Humberdink never sent the letters, or yeah. never sent the ships. Yeah, he basically says that, you know, tomorrow we will be married where we will then head off on our honeymoon on all, you know, with all of our ships accompanying. And she's like, you mean except for except for the four fastest ships right and so which you sent and he's like well yeah of course not those ships and she catches him in a lie yeah he's got to be more smooth than that 
And then uh, Humberding's all kinds of pissed off, so he goes down to the pit of despair, and he he just turns the machine to 50. Yeah, he basically says that, uh, you know, you may have true love, but nobody in this world should be allowed to have true love. So basically tries to take 50 years off of Wesley's life, which, of course, supposedly kills him. Right, right. But... As he's doing this, his screams are heard throughout the kingdom. Throughout the kingdom. Ultimate suffering. Yeah. Which is the same sound Inigo's heart made when his father died. And then he says, that sound came from the man in black. And Fezzik's like, how do you know? (laughs) And yeah, Fezzik and Inigo are looking for the man in black and they get to the woods and they find the albino. And they knock him out. I like that. I jogged him a little too hard. Yeah, yeah. Jog his memory there, Fezzik, and knocks him out. And, and so Inigo asks for help from his father. He uses the force. And he finds the tree. And they go down and they find the body of the man in black. And they say, he's dead. Right. And so they take him. Well, first, now we cut back again to the narration of you know, Fred Savage saying, what do you mean he's dead? You know, who kills Humperdinck? Right. And I love how uh, Peter Falk, basically, you know, the grandpa says... Humperdinck lives. And nobody kills him. He lives. Why'd you read me this story? What kind of story is this? Right. I see you're getting all worked up. Apparently, in the book version, uh, the grandfather does get up and leaves because of this. I don't know when he comes back, but he leaves because the son, or the grandson, is so worked up. So now we're off to Miracle Max. Uh, what'd you guys think of Billy Crystal and Carol King? Carol Kane. Total fun. Hands down, probably one of the best scenes of the movie was just the interaction of Billy Crystal with Carol King. Uh, you know, liar, liar, all that stuff. Uh, did you know that this is the one scene that Rob Reiner could not be there for? Why, he, he was to, laughing too hard? He was laughing so hard at the scene, he had to excuse himself from the filming of that scene. Oh, I can see it. Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. I'm sure their improv was hilarious. Yeah, I'm sure that they're riffing 100 miles a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess uh, for for a couple of the takes, Kerry Elwes was n- also not allowed in there because he was laughing too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so. Th- they, they used the uh, the body double that uh, Fezzik carries around. Oh, as the body yeah. double for Wesley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, smart, smart. What did you think of the, the just this whole thing with Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. I thought it was fine. I thought it was funny. Uh, Billy Crystal's always a delight. And I like when the wife comes around the corner and starts yelling at him. I like when he goes, you're a witch. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just his little quips here and there. And it turns out that Wesley's not all the way dead. He's mostly dead. He's only mostly dead. Right. And so Miracle Max, they give him a pill. Well, a chocolate covered pill. Right. Because it makes it go down smoother. Yeah. And uh, they are off to storm the castle. I love just, again, the interaction between the two. But as they go off to storm the castle, Billy, you know, I think it was Carol Kane uh, says something. I forget what she says. Wishes them luck. Uh, Billy Crystal says, have fun storming the castle. And then that little tiny dialogue you catch right at the end of, do you think it will work? And they're like, it take a miracle. Yeah. And so Fezzik and Inigo and Wesley are on a bridge or they're overlooking the the, the palace, right? And seeing how many guys are there and they're trying to come up with a plan. This is what I referred to earlier as I think one of, I consider one of the funniest Andre stories 
of, you know, the whole filming situation. Did you hear about this one? What happened during the filming of this scene? No. Andre the Giant was famous for, uh, since he was French, he would bring in crates of wine and he would drink like a crate of wine a day. Well, it also gave him really bad gas when he did that. And then during this scene, uh, while they were trying to film it, he all of a sudden let out a fart that lasted for over 16 seconds, apparently even shook that whole little uh, set design wall that they were on, shook it really badly, and all the cast members were just in shock as it just kept going for 16 seconds and was super loud. And at the very end of it, Rob Reiner looked at Andre and said, are, are you okay? He goes, I am now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what a big fart will do for you. Yeah. Apparently, according to uh, Carrie Elway's, uh, he said it was so loud and just so raunchy, you could actually see steam coming off of it. And so uh, what did you guys think of this whole bit with their planning and the plan that they come up with and all of that stuff? With the Holocaust cloak and the wheelbarrow and, yeah. the, and the wedding starting inside. Yeah. Pretty perilous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, the special effects, you know, weren't there but didn't need to be there. Like, you know, they showed the fire engulfing him, but then when they showed his face, there wasn't really much fire around him. Uh, but again, it worked. This and the way that Andre delivered the lines were, I thought, fun. I do like the interaction with the guy with the key. Is uh, give us the key. Uh, what, what key? I don't have any key. Fezzik, rip off his arm. Oh, you mean this key? Yeah, yeah. It was very reminiscent to uh, I don't know something that Han would tell Chewie to do. What do you think of the priest marrying the couple? Well, it was fine. Uh, I guess uh, I think it was Rob Reiner chose that type of character based, I don't know if it was Robert or Goldman, but they wanted that character based off a rabbi that they used to see in New York that used to make, I think it was Goldman, that used to make Goldman laugh. Okay. So that's why he had that speech impediment. Oh, sure. sure. Uh, I think he's a, he was a guy from Monty Python, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 And then at this moment up at the altar, here comes my Wesley now. Your Wesley is dead. And then they zoom through the, the, Zoom through the the nuptials. Man and wife. Man and wife. Say man and wife. Man and wife. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they're married. and uh, Take her to my honeymoon suite. <laughs> they have a honeymoon suite. And uh, so the three make it into the castle. And this is where. Inigo finally confronts uh, Count Ruben. Yep, and this is, what did you guys think of their duel? Well, first of all, where he confronts them, you're expecting you know, right away this big scene, and I love how they kind of turn it where the bad guy just runs away. Oh, I saw that coming a mile away. And I think the first time I, I watched it, that was one of those that kind of had me burst out in laughter that I did not expect that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, total class act there. Yeah. The way that Inigo just dispatched the four guards you know, within just a couple of seconds was also, I thought, pretty nicely done. That's well, because he's the greatest swordsman around, next to Wesley. Yeah, right. And Buttercup, she's walking back now with the king, and she tells him that when she gets back into her room, she's going to take her life. Well, first she thanks him and gives him a kiss. Right. Yep. And all he can say is, she kissed me. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? And then we have Rugen throw a dagger into uh, Inigo's abdomen, and it seems all hope is lost. But it's not. And then we cut to Buttercup, uh, Buttercup back in her suite, and she pulls the dagger out from the box. She holds it up to her chest. 
and magically Wesley's in there. What I thought funny was um, as Inigo's chasing Rogan and he can't get in the door, so he calls Fezzik and Fezzik just places Wesley down and goes, opens the door and then goes back and then Wesley's gone. I thought that was kind of cute. I, I, I love the look that Andre's giving as he's, it's either he's trying to figure out where Wesley went or is where did I put him? Did I? Didn't yeah, I either or. Here? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have sworn it was right here. And then Wesley's line about uh, Buttercup's breasts, you know, because the, they're so pretty, it'd be a shame yeah. to ruin those two. There's not many perfect <laughs> breasts in this world. It'd be the shame to, you know, ruin those. Is that sexist? Is that aggressive? Uh, can no. he can he talk about her breasts like that? Back then he could, and in fairy tales it's allowed. So if it. Okay. All right. So So back to Rogan's duel with Inigo. Uh, I love how they kind of built it up like he got stabbed. You know he's going to somehow get back and he's going to get back into the fight. And now they didn't just have him just jump right back up. He had to fight his way back up. And I thought it was kind of nice the way they worked that. Where did he get his wounds on his arms? Uh, It was from basically. Those were from Rogan. Yeah, Rugen goes to basically stab him, and he goes to... Deflects. He deflects once into one arm, deflects into the other arm, mm-hmm. and gets stabbed twice. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this. I never noticed this until recently that Inigo returns every single cut that and stab that Rogan had ever done to him. Basically, he uh, stabs him in both shoulders... He stabs or he slices his face. There's five total cuts, slices him in the face, and in the end, jabs him in the stomach. So the exact same stabs and cuts that Rugen had done to him, he did back to Rugen. I didn't see him get stuck. I thought he deflected all of that, and it was just a wound from the abdomen fucking him up. So I guess I was wrong. If you watch it closely, you'll see him stab him, and then when they cut away and cut back, then you'll see the blood on the shoulders. Yeah. I probably won't be watching it that closely. Okay. Um, and so an Eagle finally gets his revenge. And in the meantime, Wesley is in the room with Buttercup and Humperdinck. Humperdinck shows up. We'll go back to the duel. Some of this dialogue I thought was, was some of the best dialogue of the movie, even though like in the beginning, an is just repeating over and over again, the hello line. But at the end where he says, uh, promise me everything, you know, money, women, all that. And he's like, I, I give you anything. And he goes, I want my father back. You bastard. I just thought that was just a fun dialogue, the way they, they did that whole scene. Yeah. It was a very poignant thing for uh, Mandy Patankin. His father had died from cancer back in 1972. And as he is going through his lines about, you know, avenging his father's death and having this final moment where he gets to slay, you know, the, the person that was responsible for his father's death, he took it in a more personal way that... Uh, Rogan is representing the cancer that took his father's life. And so he kind of sort of felt for one brief moment that he was able to avenge his father's death. And it gave him uh, for just a moment, uh, sort of a fairy tale, happy ending for himself. Right on. Mm-hmm. Right on. Absolutely. And so uh, we are in the room with Buttercup, Wesley and Humperdinck and Humperdinck says to the death. And you think that this is going to be a duel, and you think that uh, Wesley still doesn't have any strength, but how did he get to the room? And um, But he does, and he basically fools Humperdinck. Because he says, to the pain. Right. And uh, Humperdinck ultimately 
surrenders. Chicken shit. He shows that he's a coward at heart. Yeah, well, I I had no doubt in my mind that he was a coward. All of the characters in this uh, film are archetypes from every fairy tale out there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and it's fine. That's the way it's meant to be. Exactly, because it's a fucking fairy tale, right? And so, uh, you know, Fezzik shows up with the white horses outside, and they all jump out and make their escape. And live happily ever after. And one of the big things is Wesley had talked earlier about retiring as the Dread Pirate Robbers. Well, we're basically hinted at that Inigo is going to become the next Dread Pirate Robbers. Oh, which makes complete sense. Yeah, because he's like, I'm in, I've been in the revenge business so long, I don't know what to do next. And he says, well, you could be the Dread Pirate Robbers. So yeah. I just, uh, you know, I guess I assume that uh, Inigo would take that mantle and then Fezzik would be his muscle. You know what I mean? I could see that going on for a very long time. Did it bother you at all knowing that Humperdinck, not only does he live, but he will become the king of this country someday. So really, yeah, he he has to live with his shame, his cowardice and all that, but he's still going to be king. Does, does that bother you at all? No. Look at my face. Do you think it bothers me? It kind of reminded me of Terry Benedict at the end of Ocean's 12 was he was kind of the big winner in it, even though... You know, he had lost the money and lost face early on. He made out like a bandit. Well, Humperdinck still is going to make out like a bandit and could even send an army after Wesley. I never thought about it once. In uh, in some interviews with Goldman, he basically said as an addition to the story that the untold origin or untold ending is that Wesley let, let later on went to have went on to have ulcers from worrying about Humperdinck and his army coming after him. Yeah, well, that's a happy ending. The story's over, and we cut back to Grandpa and uh, Grandson. Grandpa, maybe you could come over again and read it to me tomorrow? And I don't know why, or... Yeah, I don't know why, but when I watched this last night and we got to that scene and uh, Peter Falk, turns around and says, as you wish, I fucking lost it. I teared up too. I yeah. don't know why. It, it gave me the feels, I'll admit it. I teared up too. Oh, it was so good. I think it's at our age and having lost, you know, maybe some of our grandfather, grandparents and parents, things like that, that those kind of things mean more. Kind of like I, we were saying uh, before with Big Fish, that when you first watch Big Fish and then when you watch Big Fish now with so much, you know, things that have happened to you throughout your life, they have these deeper meanings for you. Yeah. There is an epilogue that was written and has come out in uh, more current versions of the book that announced that Goldman was working on a sequel to The Princess Bride called The Buttercup's Baby. And he joked in it that, or basically made people believe that the only reason why that story hadn't come out yet was because he was in a legal battle with the S. Morgenstein estate. Uh, and that's why uh, he hadn't released it yet. Well, the truth was he hadn't finished writing it, and he was having a severe case of writer's block that he couldn't figure out exactly. He had written the first chapter, but didn't know where to go from there. And unfortunately, he passed away in 2018 without completing the sequel, so it's very unlikely we're ever going to get a sequel to Princess Bride. But really, do we need one? No. No. So how many times do you think and Diego Montoya says, you killed my father, prepared to die. How many times did he give that speech? Twelve. Well, he gives it at least six or seven times during that final battle. 
so I would say 10 times. Total count? Six. <sighs> you were you should have stopped well, when you were ahead, right? Was it six times just during that duel, or was it six times total in the movie? I think it's only like three times during the duel, maybe four. Oh, I thought it was more than that, but I could be wrong. It said six times. I can't. Okay. I, I, I I took a tally during the movie, and each time I heard it. Oh, there you go. Now, how many times did uh, Vassini say inconceivable? Th- uh, four times. I would say it was about four or five times. Yeah, I was thinking five. Yeah, that might be right. So you know how the grandfather was reading a book to the grandson? It kind of reminded me of this other book. You could do something like that, or... Or I could say, uh, where was Gandalf during this whole story? <laughs> you know what this movie was missing? You know what this movie needed? A wizard. Oh, there you go. You're a wizard, Harry. Now right, you want to try that? Yeah. All right. You know, looking back at The Princess Bride, like I've said before, it is practically perfect. But you know the one thing that felt like it was missing from this? What's that? A wizard. Oh, Oh, fuck. Wait wait a second. And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in all of our podcasts where I go ahead and compare the movie that we are currently reviewing to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. In The Princess Bride, Frodo is our Wesley. He's on a journey to rescue his true love, Buttercup. His journey begins when he leaves the farm to become the Dread Pirate Roberts. Wesley also is a leader in the form of the Dread Pirate Roberts, the man in black, thus making him a little bit of an Aragorn-type character. That would make Buttercup his Arwen. Like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, Wesley was on a mission to do whatever he needed to do to be able to get back to his one true love. Although Inigo Montoya doesn't start out as Wesley's friend, he later becomes an advisor and Wesley's protector when he's mostly dead. So I felt he filled the Samwise role in this movie. Fezzik shined as a very loyal and caring companion. He was also an excellent shot with projectiles, well, basically throwing large rocks, as he pointed out that he didn't need to miss. For those reasons, I felt he was our Legolas of the movie. Really, you could say that Enigel and Fezzik were are interchangeable as Legolas and Gimli as both become essential to our fellowship. Gandalf would be Miracle Max. While he wasn't the one who put Wesley on the journey at the start, he was a wizard who saved Wesley and put the fellowship on the correct path to achieving their goals. If Miracle Max is Gandalf, I believe that his wife Valerie is our Gladriel. That makes our fellowship Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts, Enigel, Fezzik, and Miracle Max. For Theoden, I picked Humperdinck's father, the king. His heart seems to be in the right place, but he's asleep at the wheel, similar to how Theoden was early on in Lord of the Rings. For Gollum, I chose Vizzini. He was selfish and only cared about himself. He hired Inigo and Fezzik, but never really showed any connection to them. For him, it was likely all about the money that he was being paid by Humperdinck to kidnap and kill the princess. And just like Gollum, he liked to play games. Similar to how Gollum played riddles with Bilbo in The Hobbit, Vizzini played his death game with the Dread Pirate Roberts. Count Rugen 
would be Sauron the White. Like Sauron, Rugen was loyal to his master, but also had his own agenda playing out at the same time with his own set of lackeys. My pick for Sauron? Well, that would be Prince Humperdinck. His whole goal was to start a war, and he didn't care whose world he had to destroy to get his goal done. To save themselves and their true love, Wesley and Buttercup had to stop Humperdinck. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In The Princess Bride, the ring is represented by the concept of true love. Throughout the movie, the power of true love is depicted as a force that can conquer all obstacles and bring about positive change. The idea is akin to the way that the one ring symbolizes power and corruption in Lord of the Rings. While you might say those sound like opposites, while Wesley and Buttercup were strengthened by their love for each other, others like Humperdinck was just angered and corrupted in the presence of their love. And there you have it, my comparison of the Princess Bride and the Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What was the ring again? Uh, True love itself. Well, I think all the characters in general work. The ring doesn't ring as much as true to me. But uh, I, I think you got a nice wide swath of characters that you can certainly draw the comparisons with. I'm going to go B-. minus. I thought the cast of characters were there. I'm not sure I agree with Sam and, and Nigo, but I understand why you went that route. I think the Nigo and Fezzik uh, work better as Gimli and Legolas, so you, you, you got that point back there. I, too, am going to give you a B-, minus, good sir. And that was John's... moment all right what do you guys think you guys ready to rate this flick i'm ready to rate this flick john you ready to rate this flick as you wish i saw that coming a mile away and you know what i would have been disappointed if it was anything else yeah you had to i had to you had to uh professor But, but i want you to know i meant it oh buddy professor how do we do our ratings we do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks Five Fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody says, hey, you want to watch The Princess Bride? Fuck yeah, I do. A one fuck movie is a movie where you watch it and you're done. You saw it and you just know that you're never going to see it again. You have no desire to. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is, oh, for shit's sake, what the hell was that? You know what? I want one hour and 38 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. You know, I'm looking at you there, pal. My movie, I go first. That's right. Before I do, do you want to try to guess my rating since you've, I think, been on a streak lately? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you are going to give The Princess Bride 4.75 fucks. Is that your final answer? And look no, behind you. No, no, it's not my final answer. You know what? You're going to give it cinematic goal, aren't you? You're going to give it five fucks. Is that your final answer? What do you think? 4.75 or five? I'm leaning towards the seven five. All right, then I'll go five. Five fucks it is. You are giving the Princess Bride cinematic gold. Once upon a screen, a tale unfolds. The Princess Bride, a classic it molds. With love and laughter, it surely beholds a timeless gem, a story that unfolds. With true love's power, the story starts. A romance that will steal all of your hearts. Through treacherous lands and perilous charts, our journey's end is where love imparts. From swords that clash with elegant grace 
to witty banter that keeps the pace. The film enchants with every embrace, a timeless gem, a true embrace. Inigo Montoya seeks revenge. With skillful swordplay, he'll avenge. Fezzik's strength like a mountain range. Their friendship binds, it won't estrange. The casting perfection, each role embraced. Andre the Giant, his presence encased. Rob Reiner's direction skillfully laced. A cinemagraphic journey never misplaced. So raise your glass, let praises ring. For Rob Reiner's crowning thing. A film that stands the test of spring with every viewing the joy it brings. In closing here, the truth be told. The Princess Bride will never grow old. A cinematic gem, a delivery so bold, I award it five fucks because it's cinematic gold. Cinematic gold from the comic book guy. All right, I'll go next. Uh, The Princess Bride is good. It's fun. It's family friendly. It has a good message, kind of. Are there problems with it? Sure, but find me a movie that there are no problems, right? Um, It flows very well. It's cast very good. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's cinematic gold because at the end of the day, yes, The Princess Bride is good. It is very well made. The characters are likable, even lovable. But if it's on TV and I come across it, I'm probably going to keep on going. So I'm giving The Princess Bride four fucks. Okay. The Princess Bride is a very endearing movie to me, and it is, it is a very comforting watch. It it has lost none of its luster, and it I find it to be enchanting every time that I see it. Our main characters of Wesley and the and the Princess Bride I think are are delightful together, and uh, our supporting characters that we have with Diego Montoya. And Fezzik, delightful. I, I think that these characters are, are such gentle creatures, and I embrace how they move their way through the story arc. And I think that the uh, antagonist of Prince Humperdinck, he's, he's a great bad guy. And, you know, the, the way that it's written, I, I think the writing is light and friendly and fun. And Peter Falk narrating it is is very very nice as well. I think that the music is soft and tender, and I, in short, I really don't have anything critical to say about the movie. I, I think it's a very enjoyable watch, and it is so tender in its storytelling. Four point five fucks. Four point five fucks from the professor. Four fucks from me. And cinematic gold from the comic book guy gives the Princess Bride an average of four and a half fucks, which puts it in the fifth spot, tied with John Wick Chapter Three Parabellum and Snatch. It is slightly better than Alien, Ocean's Eleven, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and slightly worse than. Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, and Black Panther. You said it was tied with John Wick? Yeah. So in the fight between the Dread Pirate Roberts and John Wick, who would win? Stop it. Just stop it. You know who would win. Yeah, the ultimate sword fighter. Because the sword can cut through bullets? Well, John Wick would fight honorably. Yeah, he'd shoot him right in the fucking head. He'd pull out a pencil. Well, I still think John Wick wins. 
Okay. Hands down. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out the website. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, they can find us at www.threeguysinaflick.com, where we go ahead and post all of our podcasts. We post our show notes from every show. We have blog articles related to our podcast. And we also have a submission form on there where you could submit a movie that you would like to hear us review next. You can also find us at all of social media as well as any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale Of a boy and girl and their love story Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That was good, but I don't know. Do you want to do the hello? He really just goes hello. What? You you did the exact same thing twice. I know. Hello. But that's what I did. You went hello. Oh, did I not go hello? You didn't go hello. It's more hello. 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 I was going to do it, fucking dick. Now I can't. Now I got to see if I can get it back. You son of a bitch. Hello. No. Okay. Yeah, you could use that. No, I thought you were gonna do it. I was, but then John said it. Do see, it. I want to hear him. That's twice he cock blocked us. Twice. <laughs> Hello. <sighs> All right, I'm fucking done with you. You know what's really gonna piss me off is I'm gonna go to edit this and I'm gonna say I don't have it. I don't fucking have it. And then I'm gonna land up cutting the act- uh, Mandy Patinkin in. <clears throat> Call me up. I'll come over and do it. Yeah, 4.5. 4.5. So now there are three number fives. We have three movies in the one position, two movies in the two position, four movies in the three position, three movies in the four position, and two movies in the five position. I couldn't track that at all. <laughs> which, which one's in the pole position? As Legolas. As Legolas. Damn it. For those reasons... I felt he was our he was our Legolas. You son of a bitch! I told you that uh, my daughter-in-law thought it was the funniest thing ever when you said you can't have happiness without penis. Yeah, you can't say happiness without saying penis. Yeah, yeah so, you said that last week. Huh? Yeah, so and she called you to just, just to, to tell me you. that she she said she laughed and laughed. Well, she liked the episode, but you know, so that's awesome. Happiness. So every once in a while, just say happiness and giggle. <laughs> this movie was so good. It brought me such happiness. Or we should giggle. <laughs> well, either or. Yeah, either or. And you guys got anything? You got a porn name? Oh, come on. Really? Yes. For Princess Bride? Why not? Do you think any movie is safe? Or he's thinking it's easy. No, it's a fucking fairy tale. So is you porn, ever, dude. Have, have you, you seen? Have you ever watched porn? Banter in that makes it my favorite. We just spent two hours talking about that. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for bringing that back up. He brought up the favorite scenes. Why are you looking <laughs> at me? I brought up the quote. All right. Fuck off. Good night. My love is like a storybook.
stirring, but it's as real.